Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. Two weeks ago, uh, in our Profile of Passion series that we're continuing today, we were speaking about how Scripture and culture view passion in a different way. And I kind of ruined the series title by talking about, you know, uh, the fact that in our culture, um, we talk about passion, and, and Scripture talks about passion differently, and it's not that we're talking about different emotions, we're talking about the same emotion with different objects of that emotion, all right? And so, it's really about what we consider the correct object of our passion to be. That's the main difference. And so, what we see in our culture is that um, we glorify a kind of passion which is centered on me. Whereas Scripture glorifies zeal, which is a kind of passion. It's still a passion, but it's a kind of passion that is centered on God. And so it's the same phenomena with different, uh, you know, it's, it's an intense emotion and affection and enthusiasm, but, but with radically different objects. So for instance, um, Selena's not here, but uh, I'm passionate for Selena. I have a zealous love for her to become everything that she can be in God, right? Now, if I were to have that same passion for another woman, that same thing which is good towards Selena all of a sudden becomes destructive and, and sinful, right? And so it's not about the emotion itself, it's about the object. And so uh, we studied in John chapter 2 and we see that Jesus was filled with zeal for the church, for the house of the Lord. Jesus desires his church, even this church, NC4, to be everything that God created it to be. Jesus has a zeal for his church, which is not a building, it's a people, and it's you, along with the, the, the universal church around the world. And so, um, today our text is taken from the next chapter of John. We were in John 2, now we're going to be in John 3, and we're going to be looking at a different aspect of Jesus' passion as we look at the bridegroom. Last week, uh, Delana, um, at, well, Mike was uh, here, and we were talking about the, the, the bride. Well, today, we're going to be looking at um, Jesus' passion as the bridegroom. The bridegroom. We're going to be looking at the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, and the bride. Three characters, the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, and the bride. And what we're going to see is that Jesus is the jealous bridegroom of the church. And we are both the witnessing friend of the bridegroom with respect to the world, and we're the joyful bride with respect to the groom. All right, so before we read our passage, we're going to read uh, in John chapter 3, verse, uh, starting in verse 29, um, and I just want to give you a little bit of context before we get there. Um, a good question to ask when you come to study any book is what is the purpose of the author in writing that book, all right? And the best place to ask is to ask the author, what is your purpose for writing this book? Well, John tells us in John chapter 20 uh, that his gospel, his, his biography of Jesus, is, it says this in John 20, it's written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so if that's the author's purpose, what that becomes is an interpretive key to help you unlock 
the meaning of, of everything that John writes in that gospel because it's all geared towards that purpose, okay? And so that's the lens through which you look at everything that he writes in the book. So what does this passage that we're about to read about Jesus, what does it reveal about him that would cause us to believe in him and have life in his name, okay? That's a great uh, study tool as you approach any book of the Bible, is to ask that kind of question. So, um, when you read the book of John, the opening chapters of John are probably the richest Christological, Christological uh, uh, text in the whole Bible. Every single sentence reveals something profound about who Jesus is and how he saves. And so by the third chapter of John, we're only, we're only uh, you know, um, three chapters in out of 21 chapters, and he's already, at this point, he's presented him as the eternal word of God made flesh. The son of God, the lamb of God, the ladder between heaven and earth, the master of nature who's able to turn water into wine. He knows chemistry inside and out. Um, he's the true temple. He's the true uh, fulfillment of the serpent that Moses lifted up in the, in, in the wilderness to, to heal the people from the snake's uh, venom. And in John chapter 3, he says that he is the one that the Father sent because he so loved the world that anyone who would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And so all of that just in three short chapters, and there's so much more that you could get into. It's like every sentence is just dripping with who Jesus really is. So now, the point we come to in John chapter 3, um, it's telling us about there was a, a rivalry that came up between the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of Jesus. And this actually happened a couple times in Jesus' career. Um, John's disciples were afraid that they were beginning to lose the limelight. They said, John, you know, uh, Master, all of the people are going over to Jesus. They're all getting baptized by Jesus. That's our thing. <laughs> so they were worried about that. And John the Baptist, he says, he corrects them. He says, no, 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 no. That is exactly how it should be. In fact, that, that happening is the fulfillment of my purpose. Because he says, I am not the Christ. Rather, I'm the one preparing the way for the Christ, for the Messiah. He came to bear witness to the Christ, to serve him, and to escort the bride to her groom. And so we're going to read, uh, starting in verse 29, just a very short passage, two verses. Um, and, and here we read John speaking to his disciples. And John says, he uses this metaphor, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Amen. So, what's going on here? Why is John using, uh, John the Baptist and John the, the Apostle using um, this metaphor, this picture? Well, what you see here is that John the Baptist is tapping into this rich world of biblical symbolism. 
Now, we began this series by looking at the Song of Solomon and how the story of God's salvation is really a romance. It's a love story. The Bible is the love story of the covenant-making God and his people. It's like the old uh, 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 fairy stories where you have the, the, uh, the, the prince who would have to um, fight and have this, this quest and adventure in order to win the princess. This is the story of the Bible. That's why those stories have such power because they tap into this, which is the great story. And so... Because that's true, what you see is that romantic covenant language is woven all through the Bible. We saw it in the Song of Solomon. That's probably the highest point of that romantic language. But you see it, you see it especially in the prophets over and over again. God speaks of Israel as his bride. So Isaiah 54, Isaiah 62, Jeremiah 2, Jeremiah 3, um, Hosea. These are all prophecies that talk about the Messiah and Israel as his bride. And so when John begins to use this metaphor of, of marriage, all his disciples are on very familiar ground. They know exactly what he's referring to and talking about. Because when you read that story of Scripture, God speaks of himself as the faithful husband. The faithful husband, even when his bride is unfaithful. He remains faithful. And so, when you read the Gospels, Jesus actually refers to himself as the bridegroom on several occasions. And so you have actually here, you have a subtle um, uh, identification of Jesus with Yahweh. (laughs) Just like Hosea had prophesied, in Jesus, what John is saying is, in Jesus, Israel's husband has finally stepped into the picture. Even when his wife was unfaithful, he stepped into history to redeem and restore her. And so he had made a covenant with his people. He entered into marriage with them. That's what happened with Abraham. That's what happened with Moses at at, at Sinai. This This was the marriage of God with his people. And yet even when they broke their covenant vows, he remained faithful and he stepped in to rescue them from their sin. And so the whole story is about God's unbreakable covenant love. God's faithfulness is his covenant love. And so as we trace that, that biblical thread all the way through the scripture, what we see is that the reason that God acts in history to save us is that the bridegroom is fiercely jealous for his bride. The bridegroom is fiercely jealous for his bride. And so that's our first point. God's second commandment, as you read the Ten Commandments, which is the summary of the whole law, God's second commandment was that his people would not craft idols for themselves. And then he gives the reason. He says, you shall not make any idols of yourselves. Why? Because Yahweh is a jealous God. So... (laughs) Uh, we made a joke about it even in the uh, venue announcements that, you know, I, I ruined the series title uh, by talking about, no, it's not passion, it's zeal, right? And um, so now I'm going to ruin it even more, okay? So back then we were talking about we don't want to be passionate, we want to be zealous because that's what Jesus was, right? 
And there's a nuance to that, so you can go back and listen to that if you want to. But um, the word, the, the Greek word that's actually translated as zealous there is zelos. See the connection? All right? Zelos. All right? That's the word that we get zeal from. All right? In Hebrew, the word is kinna. I don't know how to pronounce Hebrew, but you know what it means, so kinna. Um, but there's something really interesting. I, I, I didn't really realize this until I got into uh, studying this. Um, so in Greek, it's, it's zelos. In Hebrew, it's kina. Uh, when, you, when there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament, they used the word zelos in place of that. And do you know what the primary translation of that word usually is? Um, it's more often actually translated as jealousy. When God says that you shall have no other gods before me, you won't craft any uh, idols because I am a zelos, I am a kina god, a jealous god. And so zeal and jealousy are the same word in Scripture. And again, these are both describing a passionate, violent emotion, but it's all about the proper object of that emotion. All right, so two weeks ago I told you to be zealous, now I'm telling you to be jealous. <laughs> and so, um, you know, you, you even see that in, in, in Spanish, the word uh, for jealous is celos, um, which is it's straight from that Greek word. Um, and so, I'm telling you to be zealous, I'm telling you to be jealous. It seems like we're painting a pretty negative picture of the way you should be. <laughs> because those are both pretty negative words in modern usage. No one wants to be a zealot, all right? And you certainly don't want to be known as a, you know, a, a, a jealous person. Um, so aren't we painting a very negative picture of God? Well, um, if you've ever come across uh, Richard Dawkins, who's a well-known uh, atheist, um, biologist, he, he wrote a book called The God Delusion. It was a massive bestseller. Um, it, it's, it's not particularly good, but it was, it was a very big, it was a bestseller. And um, <laughs> he, the first line of the book says that um, the God of Scripture, and I quote, is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Because and there's a very long list of why he thinks that, but, but the first thing that he says is that he's jealous and proud of it. A petty control freak. So, I think that's, if you talk about jealousy in human terms, that's a pretty fair picture of how you might see a person that you would call a jealous person. Especially someone who boasts about being jealous, Right? Those type of people do tend to be petty control freaks, all right? But here's where this picture of marriage, all right? Remember, John is writing so that we would know that Jesus is the Christ and that we would believe his name and that by believing we would have eternal life. So there's something that this picture of marriage reveals about Jesus. Now, let's take that, that, that idea of God's jealousy and look at it through the lens of marriage. Well, wouldn't it be strange... If on the wedding day, the groom couldn't care less if the bride was flirting with another man, wouldn't that be strange? Isn't there a right kind of jealousy that the, that the groom should have on that day? And every day after that? <laughs> and vice versa, the bride towards the groom. 
Should his affections not be jealous? In fact, I would say if there's not a jealousy in his affections on the wedding day towards the bride, there's something desperately wrong. Right? So even though I can give it to Dawkins, he's right. If we're talking about human terms, jealousy tends to be a very unattractive quality of a person, right? And God boasts about being jealous. But he's anything but petty. You see, the reason that we dislike jealousy in a person is because when a person is, is a jealous person, what they tend to do is they make everything about themselves, right? Love me, love me, you know, and, and it tends to be a violent kind of, of, uh, of demand. Um, so jealous people tend to consume the people around them as they demand their affection. And God is indeed jealous for his own glory. He made the entire world for his own glory. He does make everything about him. He demands our worship and he is fiercely jealous for our exclusive devotion. God wants to have us. And so when John says, there's there's a little word there in that first phrase that John says, he says, whoever has the bride is the bridegroom. In other words, whoever commands the affection of the bride is in fact the bridegroom of that bride. Whoever or whatever commands your heart's affection has you. It owns you. And if you think back to the book of Exodus, when God set the people free from Egypt, he sent Moses and Aaron to tell Pharaoh, he said, let my people go, why? So that they might worship me. He's setting the people free to worship him. And so, your worship, you you worship whatever your heart is pointed towards. Whatever has your heart is what you worship. Whatever commands uh, your heart commands your worship and commands your life. And so the question for us today as we reflect on this and try and bring it into our own lives is what are you married to? Whom are you married to? What has you? Because God's jealousy demands that it be him and him alone. Jesus, as the jealous bridegroom, demands that it be him. And you see, so why is that negative when you talk about it as a a human trait, and yet the Bible talks about it as a glorious thing about God, that he's a jealous God? Well, the thing is, the difference between us and God is that if we jealously demand someone make us the center of their world, If I demand that you make me the center of your life, the center of your universe, and everything revolves around me, what happens is I will fail you and you'll be broken in the process. But God is the only person who can actually deliver on that promise. 
He's the only one that if you make him the center of your world, he'll never fail you, and everything that's broken in you will become whole in the process. Any lesser God, if it has you, will eat you up. It will consume you. God is the only thing that can truly have you without consuming you. God's the only one who can actually have his cake and eat it too. (laughs) I never understood that phrase as a kid, by the way. I'm like, if you have it, aren't you eating it? But, you know... God is the only thing that can have you without consuming you. And so, here's the thing. For God to be jealous for your affection, to be jealous for his own glory, it's not only okay because he's king, you know, you know, kings do what they want, right? It's not only okay that he's a jealous God. For him to be anything less than jealous for his own glory would actually be immoral. It would be evil for God to be jealous for anything other than his own glory because God is the greatest thing. And what does love do? When you love someone, you want the best for them, right? You want the absolute best for the person that is your beloved. And so for God to desire or allow you to desire anything less than him would be unloving. And he'd be pointing you towards something that would ultimately fail you and leave you broken. It would lead you into slavery, actually. And so here's the point. Jesus' jealousy is the collision of God's glory and our great joy. Two things in one. God's great glory and our great joy. The Westminster Confession says that the chief end of man is to, uh, uh, sorry, I'm blanking. I didn't have it in my thing. Uh, (laughs) um, Where was it? To glorify God and and, and enjoy him forever. And actually, I I think there's there's a better way to state that, which is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. It's two things in one. Because what glorifies something better than enjoying it, Right? What glorifies the beloved more than, than, than enjoying the beloved? Okay, so um, we've been looking at Jesus as the bridegroom. Um, John identifies Jesus as the bridegroom, the faithful husband. But then in the next uh, sentence, he identifies himself not as the bridegroom, but as the friend of the bridegroom. And he says, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. So what he's referring to here, this is the ancient Jewish custom of the shashbin, who was, um, it it was much like our modern day best man. Uh, You know, the best man at a wedding. And part of the responsibility of that role was um, during the betrothal, during the, the, the engagement period, the best man would be the go-between between, between the bride and the, the groom. Uh, he would be in charge of communicating between the two. And when it came time for the wedding, the best man, the, the shoshbin, would be the herald for the groom. He would announce that the groom uh, was arriving and that the wedding could uh, begin. And so when you, when you look at John the Baptist's ministry, what you see is that it was all about calling God's people back to their first love. That was his his whole ministry. 
It was calling people back to their first love, and the way that that was expressed was in the baptism of repentance. And so, when you talk about repentance, here's another thing that this picture that John uses, that this, this, this imagery of marriage helps us to understand. It helps us to understand the nature of what sin actually is. When you understand that God is a lover and that we are married to him, we were, we were made as humanity to be married to him in covenant love, when you understand that, you begin to see why sin is actually such a serious thing. We're not talking about breaking some arbitrary rules of you know, a distant cosmic judge in the sky. It's not just like you know, breaking the speed limit a little bit. God talks about it as adultery. Sin, the nature of sin, the reason, the reason why God takes sin so seriously is that it's breaking our marriage vows to him. It's betraying our lover with another. And that language of adultery, it's woven all through the prophets, um, and, and that's what John was. John was a prophet. And so what we see here is that the bridegroom's friend abides no lesser love. A true friend of the bridegroom, this is our next point, the true friend of the bridegroom will abide no lesser love than the bridegroom himself. When you look at Scripture, the role of the prophets, it's, it's calling people back to their first love, calling people back to the only true love. And so the problem with that is that people don't often like being called adulterers. And so this is, the, this is why prophets have the tendency to get their heads chopped off in Scripture. <laughs> no one likes being called an adulterer. But a prophet can't help but do this. It's, they can't do anything else because it's out of love. It's calling people to their true love. And so this is, this is my plea to us brothers and sisters. If we're to love the church well, we must not abide any lesser love. If we're to love each other well, we cannot allow ourselves to settle for any lesser love than God himself. By this, by that, uh, that, that passion for that true love, we make ourselves friends of the bridegroom. And we become friends of the bridegroom with respect to, uh, to the bride. Part of the bride, uh, sorry, part of the best man, part of the, the, the uh, friend of the bridegroom's role was uh, caring and protecting for the bride um, as she waited for the groom to come. And so um, the friend of the bridegroom is protective of the bride. He makes sure that no one flirts with her while she's waiting for her groom. And so for us as friends of the bride, may we not abide any lesser love. May we not allow ourselves or our loved ones or, this, or the church to flirt with any lesser love. All of us has the ministry of being a friend of the bridegroom. 
And no matter what your individual ministry is, we're all gifted and wired in different ways. Um, it includes this. It includes being a friend of the bridegroom. Um, pastors especially have, a, have a, a, an extra level of responsibility in that fact because we publicly, most publicly represent the friends of the bridegroom. But here's another thing. Pastors are not the bridegroom. <laughs> it's interesting. I didn't even realize it was Pastor's Appreciation Month. So it's an interesting comment. But pastors are not the groom. Please don't make pastors the groom. They're not the center of attention. <laughs> and there's something, there's something quite sobering for me that the church really needs to learn in, in this moment, in this moment of so much celebrity culture. Especially within, the, well, also within the church. Maybe not especially, but just as much within the church. Um, this age of celebrity that, that creeps into ministry. And it's so, it's, it's kind of scary to me how easy it is to confuse gathering people to yourself versus gathering people to the bridegroom. Oh, that's dangerous. And it's scary. And I've seen it so many times. And so, the scary thing is this, the one who gathers to himself is not the friend of the bridegroom, because the job of the friend of the bridegroom is to gather people to him, right? And so, the friend of the bridegroom, if, you, if, if, you're, if you're gathering people to yourself, you're not the friend of the bridegroom, you're a rival to the bridegroom. Gives me shivers. <laughs> the church is the bride of Christ. Not of any leader or pastor or any particular church or ministry. The, the, the church is the bride of Christ. And so what that means is that any ministry always needs to have that heart of John the Baptist. He must increase, I must decrease. Now, that sounds great, and we can say that, but the, the, the issue is God uses individuals, right? He uses people. He uses programs and ministries and, and individual churches and all those things. He uses television and radio and books and all these things. And so he uses those things to draw people to his, uh, to his bridegroom. We can't get rid of the human element because God uses us. But we got to always remain on guard that, that our motives are pointing people to him. Pointing people to him. It doesn't mean a false humility when it's like, you know, great sermon, and you're like, well, you know, God. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's all him. You, know. well, <laughs> you can say thank you, but <laughs> can I tell you my heart? And I, you guys are very, very encouraging. I, I feel very affirmed being here. Thank you for, for taking a moment to honor, uh, you know, me and Rex and the other pastors and, and, and uh, Ellie who's here. And, um, you know, that is important and it means a lot. And I don't look at that lightly. But here's my heart, is that for every person that comes and says, wow, that was a great message. Or wow, you know, Ian's really great. Or wow, the worship was really great. I would rather people come away saying, wow, 
God is really great. Jesus is so good. You know, like, I, you know, I'm glad that these are tools and this is a tool and worship's a tool and all these things, but, but that ultimately they would get out of the way. That they would be portals so that people can see Jesus. <laughs> that's, that's my desire, guys. And, uh, hmm. That a person coming through these doors, and this is not to presume we're at this point, but a person coming through these doors would say, wow, that was a great message or a worship and, and you know, I want to come back for more next week, but rather, that, how great is this God? I want to come back more for him, Amen. you know? <laughs> so, the friend of the bridegroom protects and cares for the bride, and the friend of the bridegroom is also the herald for the bridegroom, the herald. Right? And so that brings us to another aspect of, of what it means to be a friend of the bridegroom because part of the job is to announce the groom's coming. All right? So there's part, there's part of the bride, uh, friend of the bridegroom's job that is towards the bride. There's the protection, there's the, there's the care, um, but there's, uh, there's also a part of the job that is towards the world, which is that the, bride, the friend of the bridegroom acts as a herald towards the world and the church, but towards the world, all right? And so he announces the coming of the groom, which is good news. This is evangelism. We're talking about evangelism. Evangelism literally means the announcing of good news, okay? Now, as soon as I mention evangelism, someone here starts to get a little nervous if you're like me. Because evangelism tends to be one of those things that we feel, you know, you can feel guilty about because it's like, oh man, I know I should be doing it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> or, you know, maybe I am doing it, but I'm not doing it enough. I mean, how can you ever really do it enough, right? But, but I, I, I think sometimes we get a very it's reductionistic picture of what the it is that we should be doing, right? It's far more than just you know, presenting the four spiritual laws and that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> that's, that's important. But, you know, so you either feel guilty because you're not doing it or you're not doing it enough or you're doing it badly, right? One of those three. And so <laughs> I remember when Celine and I uh, went to do our ministry training and we were living in Oxford and, and, you know, Oxford's a place with a lot of incredibly smart people. And I was honestly, I've, I've, to I've told you this before, I think, but I was honestly terrified I was excited to be there, but I was terrified because uh, I had this fear, and we were studying evangelism and apologetics, okay? I had this fear that I was going to encounter some, you know, triple PhD who was going to just destroy any ability of mine to present the gospel because I wouldn't know how to answer the questions. And I was genuinely afraid of that. Um, <laughs> I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to make a good enough case for God. All right? But here's the thing, and this is the next point. The bridegroom's friend is not an advocate, but a witness. The bridegroom's friend is not an advocate, but a witness. An advocate makes a case, right? On behalf of someone else. A witness does something different. A witness simply testifies 
to what they've seen, right? A witness stands up in court and they don't point, you know, when you bring a, a, an expert up in court, they're generally talking about their own expertise, right? their own knowledge, which can help elucidate the case. But when you bring a witness up to the stand, the witness doesn't point to themselves, they point to what they've seen and heard, right? They, they're testifying to something other than themselves. They're testifying to what they've witnessed. And I remember when everything changed for me, we were doing Alpha, all right? And uh, uh, this, was, this was like our our practical thing uh, of the course. We had to, we had to do some uh, ministry at, at, at some local location. I was uh, doing Alpha, and, and Alpha, if you don't know, is an outreach uh, program um, for people who are seeking you know, answers to the big questions in life. And um, I'm at this table with all these, uh, you know, um, they're seekers, but, but somewhat skeptical. And um, uh, the topic of... Um, uh, faith and healing came up. And we were all going around the circle, um, and they were all telling stories of, you know, I prayed for so-and-so, and, and uh, it didn't work, and, you know, I don't think this prayer, you know, what's the point of prayer anyway? Doesn't God already know what we, what, what's going to happen and what we need? And, you know, what's the point of this? And, and I'm sitting there, like, shriveling inside, you know, because I'm thinking about, like, oh, no, how can I make a rational case for you know, the importance and the efficacy of prayer. And, and uh, you know, when it came to my turn, uh, I didn't do that. <laughs> All I had was a, a testimony. And I shared the story of when a friend of mine, one of my best friends, he was, he was a, a pastor, um, we were very close, and it turned out uh, one day, on my birthday, actually, we were planning to go out, and on my birthday, I got a call. Wayne's, Wayne's gone. He disappeared. We know where he is. And what he'd done, it, it turned out he and his wife had been having some terrible marriage issues, and he had picked up and stolen uh, a whole bunch of money from Battelle and ran away, and we had no idea where he was. And I remember my heart just breaking and crying out to God, God, protect him. I, I, I didn't have my words. I just said, God, protect him, protect him, protect him. And I, I, would, I would be in school. It's my final year of high school, and I was fasting lunch. This is the only time I've fat, you know, done this, guys, so don't think I'm super holy. All right. <laughs> I was fasting lunch every day, going to the library at school, and just praying, God, protect him, protect him. And a couple months later, by absolute chance, not really chance, but you know what I mean, uh, someone ran into him on the streets of London and convinced him to call his wife, and they ended up coming back. And when he came back and I saw him, I gave him this massive hug, and, and he said, you know, Ian, I was trying to kill myself. I went out to kill myself. I took enough money that I could buy enough drugs that I could overdose and kill myself. And I kept doing it and trying it, and I kept waking up. I couldn't do it. And I, I just, I knew right in that moment, God protected him. God protected him. And you know what? That, that, that little testimony is so simple, right? 
it shifted the whole atmosphere of that table. And now all of a sudden, God was getting some glory, <laughs> you know? And ah, he must increase, I must decrease. You know, everything changed for me in that moment because what I saw was evangelism is just sharing good news. Good news, if, if you really think it's good, it's easy to share. <laughs> and guess what? The good news is not me. It's not my life, my lifestyle, my politics, my skills, my gifts, my ministry, whatever. It's not about me. It's not about my understanding, my ability to present God as a, as a rational thing. <laughs> the good news is Jesus. It's not about Jesus. It is Jesus. He is the good news that we announce. And so, when I, I'll speak for myself. When I look at myself in evangelism, I always have reason to doubt. When I look at him in evangelism and I present him as a witness, I'm not just an advocate making a case, I'm a witness because I've seen him, I've seen his goodness, I've seen his love. I don't have any reason to doubt <laughs> because I can have absolute confidence in him. And so the last thing I want to touch on here is the place of the bride. We've looked at the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom. And so lastly, we need to look at the bride because John tells his disciples that he rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. But we can see ourselves. Is everyone okay? All right? I'm finishing up. All right? We can see ourselves not only in the friends of the bridegroom, we can also see ourselves in, the, in, in the, the picture of the bride, of course, right? We know Scripture talks about the church as the bride of Christ. Well, uh, John, the best man, he says his joy is made complete when he fulfills his role of heralding the groom. But when is the, when is the bride's joy made complete? The bride's joy is only made complete as she is united with the groom united with the husband. We as the bride right now, we have a partial completion of the joy. And we are waiting for the completion of that joy in the coming of the groom. A bride's joy is not made complete simply, you know, when you do the, the wedding ceremony and, you know, now the groom's name is transferred to her and, you know, the groom's wealth is now transferred to her, that doesn't make her joy complete. What makes her joy complete is the groom himself. He himself is the prize of the bride. That is the nature of love. If it's anything else, it's not love. And so this is the last point, that the bride's ultimate joy is the groom. And so as we, we're talking about passion through this series, and we're talking about different forms, different objects of passion, there's a burning question at the heart of this series, which is, where does your passion lie? What has you? What commands your heart? And another way to think about it that is, is what is the thing that when you're really honest, your heart says, if I don't get that, 
then it's all a waste of time. If I don't get the wife of my dreams or the husband of my dreams or the, the number of kids that I wanted or the job that I wanted or the, the, you know, the, the power or the wealth or whatever it is, if I don't get that, I may as well not be here. That is where your passion lies. Jesus says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Jesus is the jealous bridegroom. And so the question for us is, am I a jealous bride? Am I jealous for him? Because the thing is, we're all jealous for something. You can't help it. We're all jealous for something. And so we know that the bridegroom is on his way. The, 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 the good news has gone out. He's on his way. And the question is, is our heart fixated on him? Jesus paints himself as the bridegroom. In the parable of the ten virgins, um, uh, he, he talks about himself as the bridegroom in John 14. He tells his disciples, I go before you to prepare a place for you. He's taught, that was another thing that the groom did. He would, uh, in those days, and typically today, would prepare a house for the, the married couple to live in. And so um, the book of Revelation talks a lot about uh, this moment of the final union, the coming together. The last chapter of the book is all about the marriage feast of the Lamb, right? The Bible begins with a great divorce and it ends in a great wedding, And so here's the thing, the picture, that, that picture of the bridegroom, it helps us understand one more often misunderstood thing about the gospel, because we saw that when you ignore the fact that this is a love story, you misunderstand why sin is so serious, and when you ignore that it's a love story, you also misunderstand the nature of why heaven is so good, okay? Because if you think, and these are related, if you think that sin is just the breaking of these meaningless rules, then it seems terribly unjust to keep anyone out of heaven for breaking these silly rules. Right? It seems, like Dawkins says, extremely petty. But here's the thing. When you see that this is a love story, when you see that this is all about a marriage that it begins with covenant and, and, and it ends with this union being finally uh, completed and consummated, you see that heaven is actually a picture of the, the, the eternal honeymoon. It's the honeymoon. That's what happens after the, 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 the bride and groom are united in the, in, in the wedding. And so our last slide here is that heaven's honeymoon is jealously reserved for the bride and groom alone. So let me ask you this, is it petty for the new husband and wife to restrict access to their honeymoon? Now, I love you guys. I do. None of you would have been welcome on my honeymoon. <laughs> Not one, okay? <laughs> is that petty of me? No, because here's the thing. <laughs> the good thing about the honeymoon is, you know, as good as the resort or the hotel or whatever it is that you go, the, the good thing is not that. The good thing is your beloved. 
you're finally united with your beloved. Now, imagine you tagged along to someone's honeymoon, all right? Now, I mean, not only would that be extremely awkward, all right? Hey, guys, you know, heard you're going to this great resort. Like, can I tag along? You know, uh, not only would that be extremely awkward, but, you know, the other thing is it would be, it would end up being torture because you got to sit there with this lovey-dovey thing that you're not a part of, right? And so, <laughs> here's, here's the very serious point, all right? If you are not jealously in love with the groom, heaven will not be heaven for you. It would be horrible. And as someone once said, the fire of heaven, we talk a lot about, we talk a lot about the fires of hell. The fires of heaven burn much hotter than the fires of hell. Because God is a consuming fire, it says. And it's the consuming fire of his jealous love for us. And if he has not shaped you and prepared you to endure that fire, you will not endure it. If you're not burning with that same loving, jealous passion for your groom, we won't endure. And so... I've, been, I've gone on for quite a while, and I'm going to end it there. Um, can we stand together? I'm going to pray and close, and, um, and, uh, and Chad's going to uh, bless us as we leave. Hmm. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much, Lord, that you are the jealous bridegroom that you love us with such intensity that you will, you will not settle for us uh, going and flirting with any other love. And it's not because you're petty, it's because you love us so profoundly. And so Jesus, I pray if, there, if there's anyone here who has not given themselves over to your love, Jesus, do what only you can do and transform their heart. Bring them, welcome them into that romance, the very thing that we were created for, that our hearts desire above everything else, that completes us, that their joy may be complete, just as John said his joy was complete. Lord, and for those of us who, who are walking with you, we've, we've entered into that. Lord, help us to recognize the lesser loves that we flirt with. And to reject them, Lord, to turn back to our first love continually, Lord, that Jesus, that you would increase and that we would decrease by the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.